from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony. It's Deviance in Cast, with your host Eric P. Y'all ready for this? So powerful. Now that not only pals are placing it. A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. Earthlings, this is Eric S. Piotrowski coming to you live from Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome to the Deviate Syncast, your o- weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, a.k.a. Duke Scath in the world of video games, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia, and the only deviant thing about me is my sociocultural heterogeneity. I want to start right away with Coney. A lot of people have been asking me about Coney. My students keep bringing Coney up. Um, I have a lot of things to say about Coney, and I'm actually not going to say most of them here. I will be posting on my blog, fbesp.org slash synapse. That's floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski.org, fbesp.org slash synapse. Uh, <clears throat> I will be posting there about all the stuff I think about Coney, and I'll have a really long post probably by the time this goes out to most people. However, I have a couple things I need to say right here and right now. First of all, I think, in general, the Invisible Children campaign with the Coney 2012 video has been a good thing. This is the first time I have ever had... I had two students, independent of each other, come to me and say, Mr. P, I'm interested to know more about what's going on in Central Africa. You know when that's happened to me ever before in in my 12 years of teaching? Never, okay? It's never happened before. So the fact that it's making my teenage students interested in what's going on in Central Africa is awesome. I think that's fantastic. Do I agree with everything Invisible Children is doing? No. Do I agree with their prescription for sending U.S. military advisors into Central Africa? No. But that's a different question. Really, I think that the sum total of what they're doing is a positive thing, and I'm happy to see the fact that they're spreading awareness about the use of child soldiers and the horrors that are going on in Africa, and I also like the fact that they are bringing it back to a connection, and the guy in the video says, if this were going on in the United States, we wouldn't stand for it for a minute, and it's true. We tend to turn a blind eye to the suffering that goes on in Africa because it's not happening to us, and it's also true, as the video points out, that we tend to be surrounded by this cocoon of media hype and distraction about stuff that doesn't matter when people are suffering and dying in places that we don't hear about. And so the fact that they have turned the camera briefly away from the Grammys and the Golden Globes and all the, you know, Hollywood hype, and they've turned it to focus on the suffering of people in Central Africa, I think that's an awesome thing. Again, I don't agree with everything Invisible Children's doing. I've got criticisms. I'll go into those on the website. But... I will not give in to the cynical slacker attitude that says, oh, these people are looking at a video on YouTube and they're just retweeting it and they think it's going to accomplish something. (laughs) You know what? That does not by itself accomplish much. I agree with that. But it's a first step. And we all get interested in issues in various ways, okay? I've been working on human rights issues for more than 15 years, okay? So you can't tell me a thing about how to do it right, okay? I've been doing it for years, almost two decades now, okay? So I've seen all the different attempts that we make and all the different pushing and shoving that we do and all the hours and hours and hours of attempts that we make to try to get people interested in this stuff and I see it crash and burn and fail miserably and I see people yawning and turning away and putting their earbuds back in and giving two craps about what goes on in the rest of the world. So the fact that this video is breaking through that uh, void of consciousness that most people, especially most Americans have and it's causing some people to go, hey! there's something important going on and I can do something about it that's great okay and if you have a criticism about the way Invisible Children is operating okay if you have a concern about how they're spending their money hey that's valid I'm not saying people shouldn't have any criticisms but if you're not involved in human rights work 
then you don't have a right to tell people, well, that's not the way you make things better. <laughs> if you are someone who is involved in human rights activism, by all means, tell people, look, just donating money in and of itself isn't going to do enough, okay? You need to take some other action. And if you're not involved in human rights work, you don't have something better that people can do, be quiet. Okay, so that those who have taken action, those who do have some suggestions about what people can do once they learn about the Coney situation, once they look a little deeper and they learn a more complex version of the story, once they understand what's going on in more of Central Africa than just what the Coney video presents, and people should learn more about it, of course. But once they've done that, then what? That's the question. And most of the people on the internet who have this sort of cynical, reflexive, knee-jerking uh, uh, attitude of, oh, well, these people are just spreading awareness and it doesn't mean anything okay make it mean something tell me what I can do and if you can't be quiet okay Amnesty International has put out a several responses to the Coney video and it's been very measured the first one they put out was uh, on the 8th of March and it says efforts to arrest Joseph Coney must respect human rights okay and as they point out I'm quoting from their press release here for many years Amnesty International has been calling for the LRA leaders to be arrested Amnesty International has been working on this stuff for years I would point out I wrote about the LRA in 2004 on my blog I didn't get any comments I didn't get any response from that but that's okay nobody reads my blog I'm okay with that. My point is that some people are saying, oh, why does everyone suddenly care about this? It's not that everyone suddenly cares about this. Some of us have cared about it for a really long time, but nobody else has seemed to care. So the fact that other people now are interested and they want to do something, awesome! Let's do something, shall we? Amnesty goes on to say, quote, Joseph, this is from um, Erwin van der Borcht, uh, Africa director at Amnesty International. He said, quote, Joseph Kony and other LRA leaders have evaded arrest for far too long, and this campaign is a salient reminder of the continuing crimes by LRA members and the need to arrest and surrender their leaders to the ICC so they can face trial, period. They also had uh, an urgent action alert that came out very recently that said, and I will link to this on my website, fbesp.org slash synapse, uh, the action alert says, and the use of child soldiers. Quote, from South Sudan down to the DRC, the Lord's Resistance Army, other armed groups, and all too often the national armies of the countries in which they operate, forcibly recruit children into armed conflict. Take action. Let's try to stop this. It should be a more systematic approach. Yes, Invisible Children is only focused on Kony, and that's a shortcoming of the campaign. Okay, let's broaden the discussion. Let's end the use of child soldiers everywhere. But wait, Piotrowski, doesn't that mean we might have to take a critical look at how uh, the military recruits on the campuses of the United States high schools? Maybe, but it has to be part of that larger discussion. I'm jumping the gun. Let me also say, just here and now, that... Uh, there was a, an incredible victory that came out today, the 14th of March, um, when the International Criminal Court found Thomas Lubanga guilty of using child soldiers. He's the first person convicted by the International Criminal Court, the same organization that's featured in the Coney video, talking about we need to arrest this guy. He's number one on our list of most wanted. Uh, and this is from the Los Angeles Times. I will link to all this stuff on the website. Uh, quote, Lubanga, the head of a rebel militia that fought a devastating ethnic war in the Democratic Republic of Congo on Wednesday, had the distinction of being the first person convicted convicted by the ICC, a decade on the institution. The guilty verdict is a milestone for the court that also marks the first time an international trial has focused solely on the recruitment of underage soldiers, which is forbidden in global treaties, but usually lumped in with other war crimes charges. So again, this guy, Lubunga, uh, uh, Lubanga, excuse me, has um, done a lot of the same stuff Kony has done, making women into sex slaves and, you know, drugging boys and girls under the age of 15. <clears throat> 
And the fact that he's been convicted is awesome. We should be celebrating this. Alas, most people have taken this opportunity of the, the conviction of Lubanga and used it as a way to criticize those who are interested in Kony. This isn't trending. Nobody's talking about Lubanga. Okay, just talk about it. Why can't you just talk about it? Let's say, look, the ICC is a great thing. It's achieving justice for warlords. Let's keep it going. Let's continue to support the ICC. And I hate to remind people of this unpleasant truth, but the United States government lobbied against the creation of the International Criminal Court. We were worried they might start issuing verdicts against some of our soldiers. Like, for instance, the guy in Afghanistan who recently went nuts and killed the people in the village there. Maybe he would be brought up for charges. Now, that's a very small-scale massacre. I'm not trying to compare it to the actions of this warlord, you know, making 15-year-olds into his sex slaves. But, if we are interested in an international standard of justice, we cannot say we are exempt from it. And that is what a lot of people in the United States seem to think. Okay, I will say other things about Coney on my website. Let's move on to other issues. Let's talk about Iran. That's a fun thing to talk about. Woohoo! There was a full-page ad placed recently in the Washington Post, uh, taken out by a number of former U.S. military officials. The people who signed the ad were Major General Paul Eaton, uh, Tom Fingar, former Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Analysis, uh, Lieutenant General Robert G. Jarr, Jr., and others. Uh, And they said, quote, in a full-page ad in the Washington Post, Dear Mr. President, the U.S. military is the most formidable military force on Earth, but not every challenge has a military solution. Unless we or an ally is attacked, war should be the option of last resort. Our brave servicemen and women expect you to exhaust all diplomatic and peaceful options before you send them into harm's way. Preventing a nuclear-armed Iran is rightfully your priority and your red line. Fortunately, diplomacy has not been exhausted and peaceful solutions are still possible. Military action at this stage is not only unnecessary, it is dangerous for the United States and for Israel. We urge you to resist the pressure for a war of choice with Iran. I would also point out, and and for those who don't know, Iran is maybe developing a nuclear weapon. Israel is talking about we have to attack Iran now so they don't get a nuclear weapon. And a number of people are saying, wait, this might end up being a lot like what happened in Iraq. Remember how a lot of people said Iraq was about to have weapons of mass destruction and we went in there and we killed between 100,000 and a million Iraqi civilians and we never found weapons of mass destruction. It was a big clustered boom and a lot of American soldiers died and people are now suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and suicides among U.S. soldiers just went way up and all the rest of it, maybe we shouldn't be rushing into another war in the Middle East, right? Some people are saying, oh, we don't have to actually go to war with Iran, we can just engage in some targeted strikes, airstrikes. And it's the same thing with Syria. Some people are saying we should arm the Syrian rebels, and we don't have to actually go to war, because look at what happened with Libya. We did some targeted bombing there, and we didn't have to send any troops in, and everything turned out great. Well, I found a very interesting quote today. Uh, Amnesty International sent me a book uh, by Rory Stewart and Gerald Knaus, and it's called Can Intervention Work? And it was published by uh, W.W. Norton as part of the Amnesty International Global Ethics Series. And the book is called Can Intervention Work? It's a really interesting book. I'm about halfway through it. And the quote I found is from 1992, and the quote is this. You bet I get nervous when so-called experts suggest that all we need is a little surgical bombing or a limited attack. When the desired result isn't obtained, a new set of experts then comes forward with talk of a little escalation. That was from Colin Powell, chairman of the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. Now, I think that quote is really important for us to remember when we start talking about how, oh, we can just do a little bombing and it'll make everything better and, and then we won't have to send troops, but we can still do something and make stuff better. 
And as I've said before, it's not like I don't think we, the United States, can ever achieve something positive. And maybe it could be said that, you know, our bombing in Libya or our bombing in, uh, in Kosovo helped to keep the total number of people who died lower than it would have been. But I also know that there are times when we have gotten involved in things, starting with a little bit of bombing, and then it escalates in Vietnam, in Mogadishu, in other places, and, and it, 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 it can spiral out of control. And I think we need to be very, very careful anytime we go to war. This is why Congress is the only part of the federal government that can declare war. Now, most of the time, Congress these days doesn't even declare war. They just say, we allow the president to send some troops somewhere, but that's neither here nor there. Meanwhile, Iran is nervous about letting weapons inspectors in to their military sites in order to inspect for nuclear weapons. The IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, makes it their business to go around and inspect to make sure people aren't building nuclear weapons. And these were the weapons inspectors, including Hans Blake's, that were supposed to go and check out Iraq. And they're the ones who are going in to check out Iran. Now, the question is, are there sometimes people who... Iran says that sometimes the weapons inspectors are spying. Okay. Now, Iran s sees, you know, the sun go down two minutes early and they say, oh, it's a Zionist plot. Fair enough. Okay. But is there any credibility to the question about whether there could be spies working with these weapons inspectors? Well, let's look at the record, shall we? In Iraq, there were a number of U.S. media sources, including the New York Times and the Washington Post, which said in 1999... The New York Times said the United States officials said today that American spies had worked undercover on teams of United Nations arms inspectors. Okay, the Washington Post said in 1999, quote, the U.S. infiltrated agents and espionage equipment for three years into U.N. arms control teams in Iraq to eavesdrop on the Iraqi military without the knowledge of the U.N. agency. It's happened in the past, okay? And, and it's, it's not, so it's not insane, in my opinion, for the Iranians to say there could be spies working with these weapons inspectors, okay? You're not crazy if you have some basis for saying it. Now, does that mean that's definitely what's happening now? No, not necessarily, but I don't think people are insane to suggest that it could be happening now. I'm interested to know what evidence people might have. Meanwhile, I saw an article recently about... <sighs> The headline from the Boston Herald is, Aid Groups Protest to CIA Over Bin Laden's Scheme. Uh, this is the first paragraph of the article. A leading coalition of American humanitarian aid groups has written to the CIA chief to protest the agency's use of a Pakistani doctor to help track Osama bin Laden, linking the ploy to a worsening polio crisis in Pakistan. What happened was, the... U.S. government, the CIA, uh, working with uh, Pakistani intelligence, cooked up a fake vaccination scheme in order to get some DNA from the Osama bin Laden family. And as a result, some people thought they were getting vaccinated and they weren't. The CIA was behind the whole thing. It was all a plot to get some bin Laden DNA. And again, can you then be question people in Pakistan when they say, we don't trust our government, we don't trust these health organizations because they could be working with the CIA to get DNA from somebody here. It's not, it sounds ludicrous, but in fact, that's what happened. So I would say if we want to win the hearts and minds of people in Pakistan, we should stop pretending to vaccinate them against things. If it's a CIA plot, hey, CIA, find another way to get bin Laden DNA. Okay, let's talk about economics. Oh, wait, no, there's one more thing I need to talk about with regard to current events. Uh, there's a guy named Traven... <clears throat> 
excuse me, I want to get his name right, Traven Martin. He was 17 years old. He was in a gated community in Sanford, Florida. Hey, I'm from Florida. Awesome. Around sunset on February 26th of 2012, a neighborhood watch captain named George Zimmerman, this is from a CNN article, uh, he saw the teen, Traven Martin, a black kid, and he called 911 to report a suspicious man. The 911 dispatcher told Zimmerman not to confront Martin, but by the time police arrived, the teenager lay dead with a gunshot wound to the chest, according to the Sanford police chief. This is a direct quote from the article. He was carrying a small amount of cash, some candy, and an iced tea. Zimmerman told police he shot Martin in self-defense. When the L.A. riots broke out in 1992, it was not just about Rodney King. It was... The, the, the spark that set everything off was the verdict that said not guilty. People waited for that verdict. St. Petersburg, uh, that was the same thing four years later. But these things don't just happen out of the blue. It is incidents like this, and it is the incidents like Leroy Jones, and it is the incident, not Leroy Jones, uh, there was another guy in, in New York uh, many years back. Um, it, there, there are incidents all the time. When unarmed young black men and young black males uh, are shot dead, despite the fact that they are not wielding a weapon, and it happens all the time, and this is why people riot. This is why people don't trust the police. This is why people are convinced that the drug game is being run with a wink and a nod by corrupt police officers. And there are too many police officers shooting unarmed black men, and it makes me sick, and I'm I'm tired of seeing it all the time in the news. Because it's not that it shows up once in a while, and it's not that uh, occasionally it's a black kid, occasionally it's a white kid. It's almost always a black kid or a Latino kid who gets shot without having any probable cause and without having a weapon. And usually, the law enforcement personnel don't get punished for it. Certainly not in any way meaningful way. So I'm going to be watching this case very carefully. And if people don't know about uh, Trayvon Martin, then please look into him because he's a very, it's a very interesting story. All right. That's not the main thing I want to talk about today. <clears throat> the main thing I want to talk about today is high-frequency trading. If you don't know what it is, high-frequency trading, and I alluded to this, I believe, on the last show. Um, high-frequency trading is a method of buying and selling stocks, whereby computer algorithms make the trades and they do them very, very quickly. They buy the stocks for, and they hold the stocks for sometimes fractions of a second. And they sell the stock for a fraction of a penny more than what they paid for them. And they, of course, do this over and over again very, very quickly in a way that will eventually mean big money. If you saw the movie Office Space, you remember there's the whole thing about how they take fractions of a penny and they put them in a bank account. Eventually, it adds up. And as we saw, it added up very quickly. It really got going in Superman 3, whatever. This is a real thing, this high-frequency trading. It's a real thing, and a lot of people are doing it, and it can have some very serious consequences. For instance, on the 6th of May in 2010, there was a thing called the Flash Crash, and it's actually called the Flash Crash of 245 because it happened so quickly, and it was corrected so quickly, that it was almost unnoticed. It happened uh, at 2.45 p.m. The Dow Jones Industrial Average plunged 1,000 points, and I'm reading from the Wikipedia article now, 9%, only to recover those losses within minutes. It was the second largest point swing uh, on in-day trading 
uh, intraday basis in the Dow Jones Industrial Average history. So it was a big deal. Now, what caused it? It wasn't entirely um, uh, high-speed trading. Okay, It wasn't high-frequency trading alone that caused it. Uh, and in fact, some people have said that it wasn't really high-frequency trading at all. But it has suggested that there is the capacity for crashes as a result of it. And when we turn to the Wall Street Journal, we find an article that says many crashes hit the commodity trade. And in fact, what we find is that these flash crashes happen a lot. There's a quote here from a guy named Jonathan Lewis, the chairman of the investment committee at Samson Capital Advisors. And he said, as we saw with the equity markets, it, high frequency trading, increases the probability of surprise distortions. How's that for a fun phrase? Surprise distortions. This is something that investors, policymakers, and central banks should all be concerned about. This guy is a capital advisor. He is part of an investment committee at this capital advisement firm, okay? These are the people who do the buying and selling, and they're worried about it, okay? So if they're worried about it how worried should we be worried about it hopefully you have all heard about the guy at Goldman Sachs who just left today 14th of March Wednesday because he saw the climate at Goldman Sachs being so toxic and so uninterested in helping their clients make money not even about never mind about helping the country get better and you know getting out of the uh, recession. No, never mind that. He's, he's saying that Go Goldman Sachs executives aren't even interested in helping their clients make money. So if that's the attitude among the traders, obviously they're not going to care if this high-frequency trading leads to crashes for the rest of us. Uh, and they, these high-frequency trades, uh, it says here, it now accounts for 28% in the total volume in the futures markets, which includes currencies and commodities, up from 22% in 2009. And the sudden tumbles have forced commodity markets operator ICE to implement trading rules to prevent big swings. So there are some restrictions being placed by certain companies that do the trading. But the, the markets, the stock markets, the Dow Jones and the, the New York Stock Exchange and others, they often aren't regulating it. And the government isn't saying we need to put some brakes on this. There are some individuals who are saying we need to put some brakes on this. We'll get to that in a minute. That article in the Wall Street Journal goes on to say, uh, on March 1st, uh, presumably of 2012, um, there was a flash crash in the cocoa market. Cocoa market. Uh, it says cocoa at 10:30 a.m. New York time on March 1st. Cocoa plunged $450 in one minute to a low of $3,217 a metric ton. The sell orders were unusually large for the cocoa futures market, which typically handles about 20,000 contracts a day. Quote: The electronic platform is too fast. It doesn't slow things down like humans would," said Nick Gentile, a former cocoa floor trader. "It's very frustrating to go through these flash crashes," he said in a February letter to ICE, the World Sugar committee which represents large sugar users and producers called algorithmic and high-speed traders quote parasitic so these are the people who are buying and selling the cocoa and the world sugar uh, commodities prices okay and they're worried about it meanwhile when we turn to the new york times there was an opinion piece recently from uh, edward e kaufman and carl m levin and uh, Kaufman was a Democratic senator from Delaware for uh, from 2009 to 2010. Carl Levin is a Democratic senator from Michigan, and he is the chairman of the Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. And they say that we need to regulate this high-frequency trading in order to keep from having another flash crash. 
Uh, and they conclude their opinion piece by saying, America's capital markets, once the envy of the world, have been transformed in the name of competition that was said to benefit investors. Instead, this has produced an almost lawless high-speed maze where prices can spiral out of control, spooking average investors and startup entrepreneurs alike. Again, not the article now. Never mind about the rest of us who don't invest in the stock market. Who cares what that's going to do to us? This is going to affect average investors. Now, I'm not saying average investors aren't important. Obviously, they are. But those of us who are subject to the whim, the capricious up and down of the stock market, we have some rights too. And the government needs to be watching out for us as well. So if our pension funds or whatever it is are dependent on uh, sound investing, I suppose this is what they mean by average investors. The point is... Uh, the government needs to be watching this casino-like hedonism on Wall Street so that it doesn't hurt the rest of the economy, even if we're not investors. It should, they should still be watching out for dangerous trading practices, and especially when we turn them over to the computers. Because, I don't know about you, but I saw that documentary film, The Matrix, and I don't like what the computers have in mind for us once they take over. And that other documentary film, Terminator 2, that suggests that once Skynet becomes sentient, things are going to end up badly for us humans. So I think we ought to prevent that sentient Skynet thing from happening as long as we can. Um, Business Week, what do you think about it? Well, uh, they had an article recently in Business Week from a guy named Chilton, and uh, he is uh, Bart Chilton, a Democrat at the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Those of you who follow the 2008 crash might remember that the CFTC was the organization that Brooksley Bourne was a part of, and she, if you don't know about Brooksley Bourne, oh my God, you've got to go learn about her. Find the Wikipedia article on Brooksley Bourne and read her story because she is a fascinating individual. She's the one more than probably anyone else, any other individual, who said this uh, collateralized debt obligation stuff, these over-the-counter derivatives, they're bad news. We need to regulate them. And Alan Greenspan and, and Larry Summers and Tim Geithner and all the people who were really responsible for that 2008 crash, they looked at Brooksley Bourne, who was sounding this alarm and telling us, hey, this stuff's going to end in tears. And they looked at her and they said, you need to shut up, lady. We, we need to restrict your ability to regulate this stuff because the CFTC was allowed to regulate them until Alan Greenspan said, she's causing problems, deal with her. And Washington dealt with her, and they gave her some tiny job out of the way, and they basically took any power she might have had away. But she was right. And Greenspan finally, later on at some congressional hearing, he said, and I can find the quote if people want, he said, Alan Greenspan, who was the fairman of the Ched for like 30 years, he's the maestro, according to Bob Woodward, Alan Greenspan said eventually, there might have been a flaw in my thinking that markets will always regulate themselves. This is a man who said that fraud needn't be a concern for regulators because fraud will always be punished by a free market. Alan Greenspan is the patron saint of modern free marketism, along with Milton Friedman, don't get me started on him, and Alan Greenspan said to Congress, I may have made a flaw in my thinking. And, and, and that's not, I'm sorry, that's not much of a mea culpa. That's not a way of saying, oh my goodness, I created a horrible disaster. Lots and lots of people lost their jobs because I thought that the free market can just be trusted. And it can't. 
Anyway, uh, so this guy, Bart Chilton, a Democrat at the Commodity Future Trading Commission, uh, he says that this automated, uh, private automated trading companies and units and banks that rely on split-second timing to implement strategies should register as high-frequency traders so that regulators know who they are and what they're doing. Well, duh, that sounds like a good first step to me. I had a student come to me and give me an article from The Economist. And the article is called, The Fast and the Furious, High Frequency Trading Seems Scary, But What Does the Evidence Show? And my student's contention was, this stuff isn't really that scary. It seems scary to some people, but you know what? We just need to be uh, willing to accept that things are changing. But the Economist article actually ends like this. Triana, a post-trade processing firm, launched a software program last year that aggregates clients' positions across lots of different venues in real time and activates a kill switch that stops clients' trading once predefined limits are breached. But this is a voluntary initiative, one that is not required by regulators. Other markets remain unprotected. Regulators should not be afraid to act firmly to define and enforce standards for market surveillance and trading controls across venues and asset classes. And getting the infrastructure right is important in other areas, too. And we should point out, when this, when that flash crash happened, there were some people on Wall Street who said, hey, this is messed up. Now, the concern was, and this is where we have the split between the average investor that we talked about before and those of us who aren't even involved in the stock market, because the average investor, the sort of little guys who were trying to, to complain about this high-frequency trading thing, they said, well, what we need, we don't have the same speed of information that these computers do because they're right next to the stock exchange. So here's what the stock exchange did, and I'm not lying about this. You can look it up. I don't have the data in front of me, but you can look into it. You'll find it's true. They built this huge building near the stock exchange like just across the border in New Jersey. And it has this enormous pipeline, this data pipeline, a T10 connection or whatever it is. And they built it so that this pipeline came into the middle of the building and every average investor who wanted to set up in this building had a, a station around this data pipeline that was exactly the same distance away from it so that the the electrons traveling along the computer lines from the stock exchange into this building traveled the exact same distance so that nobody got the information faster than anybody else. Okay, I suppose that's a good first step, but what I'd really like to see is, what are these computers doing with the trading? And, and maybe we should have a minimum amount of time you can hold a stock. And incidentally, that's something suggested by this Economist article as well. And so I think that's a good idea. That's a good start. All right, as I said, um, there is this guy who uh, resigned from uh, Goldman Sachs. Uh, his name is Greg Smith, and he wrote in an opinion piece in the New York Times, and you should read it. It's very interesting. He said, quote, I can honestly say the environment now is as toxic and destructive as I have ever seen it. To put the problem in the simplest terms, the interests of the client continue to be sidelined in the way the firm operates and thinks about making money. And it's quite clear that Goldman Sachs is not going to just change its ways by itself because capitalism prizes making money and Goldman Sachs executives are all about let's make more money woo now they're supposed to be making the money in the name of their clients but really Goldman Sachs executives according to this guy are just saying to hell with you clients how much money can I make through you and make money out of you and off of you okay that's disgusting um, but but it needs to go further than just that. So the point is, there needs to be more regulation of Wall Street. And Goldman Sachs isn't going to hear that. And this guy, Greg Smith, probably isn't going to want to hear that. But the truth is, these organizations and institutions are not going to change on their own. So we, the people, the democracy, needs to come in and say, hey, Wall Street, you're ruining things and you're running amok. And we need to reinstate Glass-Steagall and do a bunch of other things. However, that's neither here nor there. Let's move on, shall we? Let's talk about hip-hop. 
Um, Low Key is a great rapper. If you haven't listened to Low Key, you should totally listen to him because he's very interesting. He put out a uh, album recently called The Sound of the Struggle or something like that. I'm going to try to find the name of it uh, because you should definitely check it out. And here it is, uh, Soundtrack to the Struggle by Low Key. And he's got some really good tracks on here. He's got one with Shadia Mansoor who's done some really cool work. Uh, with um, he, She did a track with uh, Narcissist who's another awesome uh Canadian Iraqi rapper uh, and Loki has some really good stuff about what's going on in the Middle East and um, a track called Abomination which is about how you know we have a new president and so some things have changed but not a whole lot has changed in terms of you know we're still dropping bombs on Pakistan and you know, the United States is still conducting uh, a lot of military escapades overseas and so on and so forth. Loki has a line in there that says, I call Obama our bomber because those are your bombs. Uh, so I thought that was a pretty good play on words. The other person I want to tell you about is Brother Ali. And if you have not listened to Brother Ali, oh, you are missing out. He's really excellent. Uh, his two most recent albums are called The Undisputed Truth and Us. And I would say Us is the must-have album. The first track uh, It's called Brothers and Sisters and it features Chuck D. And if you start an album with Chuck D, hey, I'm in. And then the second track, The Preacher, is this high-energy jam. It's really fantastic. And he's also got one on the track called Tightrope, which is dynamite. And it's all about people who live, the chorus says, live in two worlds with your eyes closed, tiptoeing on a tight rope. And it's all about people who have to try to live between two worlds. And a lot of us have that experience of living in many different worlds at once. And so the first verse is about a kid who moves to the United States from Somalia. And the second verse is about a... Uh, kid whose parents are divorced and uh, bounced from his house to her house. Too bad their marriage didn't work out. Now you don't have a your house. And then the third verse is about a kid who's grown up and he's gay and his uh, daddy was a preacher, mama was a Sunday school teacher, brother was a football squad leader. Far be it from you to disappoint them, etc., etc. Uh, so it's just a really good use of uh, lyricism and weaving in stories, but also producing some funky beats. And it's definitely worth checking out. So Brother Ali, give him a listen. Let's talk about killer robots. Um, yeah, there was this breakthrough that came recently. Let me read you the Fox News article about it. How about that? Yeah, who would ever think I would read from Fox News? But the way they worded this actually has a very interesting twist to it. Uh, the article is about this robot cheetah, and I'm not making this up. Uh, NASA, okay, not NASA. The United States Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, DARPA. If you don't know about DARPA, you're sleeping. Because DARPA is the group that basically built the Internet. Okay, don't, every time people make the joke about, Al Gore invented the Internet. <laughs> no, he didn't. He didn't even say he did. He said he took the initiative to fund it and... Whatever. Stop with the Al Gore joke, okay? DARPA, DARPA was the organization in the United States government that had the most to do with making the Internet happen. And in case you don't know, the Internet was the result of a massive socialist program. Billions and billions of U.S. taxpayer dollars poured into DARPA in order to develop a communication system that would survive a nuclear attack. And we created the Internet as a result. And thank God we did. The Internet's a wonderful thing. So next time you hear somebody complaining about government can't do anything right, me, me, me. If you're hearing that over the internet, guess what? That's a fraud, okay? Because the government clearly made the internet very well, and thank goodness they did. So Sarah Palin, shut up about the internet. Anyway, um, DARPA continues to do interesting things, and a lot of it has to do with robots. And so they've created a robotic cheetah. 
and this robotic cheetah, funded by the U.S. military, has broken the land speed record while running on a lab treadmill. Its robotic display of athleticism gives hope for new battlefield robots that could prove nimbler than existing robots on wheels or tank-like treads. And... The upshot of it is, of course, you know, we can use these robots to defuse bombs or, you know, chase insurgents or whatever. Uh, and, and at the end of the second paragraph, Fox News has this cute little phrasing. Its top running speed of 18 miles per hour, 29 kilometers per hour, is faster than the average human jogger, but still lags behind top human speeds of nearly 28 miles per hour, 45 kilometers per hour. Perhaps a relief for anyone fearing a world where robots can outrun their human overlords. Ah ha ha, how cute, Fox News. It's not a joke, man. It's going to happen, man. Um, now, the real concern that I have is this. As I mentioned in that article from Al Jazeera recently, the fact that the United States military has these robots and can use them to go into war zones to take out the quote-unquote bad guys means that the domestic cost of going to war is much lower now. And the more robots we deploy, the more willing we are to accept U.S. intervention overseas because we don't have to worry about U.S. soldiers dying. And people in the United States tend not to get very nervous about civilians in Pakistan or Iraq or Libya dying. We don't really worry so much about that. Some of us do. I mean, some people are worried about it. But for the most part, you know, we're not going to see, especially on Fox News, people in Pakistan being killed by U.S. flying robots. So my concern is that this increase in the use of robots, the development of better and better robots, could mean that the U.S. military has more and more freedom to do whatever they want overseas because people in the U.S. are like, well, we don't care. Now, that's not to say we see a lot of dead bodies when U.S. soldiers do go into war, but there's a certain something about U.S. soldiers coming back in caskets that is a little more unpalatable than if a robot gets blown up overseas. Yeah, So I just worry that this could increase the impunity with which the U.S. military says, we can do whatever we want because we're not really hurting any U.S. soldiers. And that's a concern for me. So watch out for these killer robots. Moving on to popular culture, uh, Banksy, I talked about Banksy, he had a great quote from his 2004 book, Cut It Out, where he said, people are taking the piss out of you every day, which had to do with advertising. Now, uh, there's a, an interesting post on a blog called readingfrenzy.com uh, by a guy named Sean Teharachi. And he wrote in a magazine called Crap Hound, or Zine, whatever you want to call it, uh, something that was very, 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 very similar to what Banksy said. And basically, he's accusing Banksy of swiping his perspective from him. And there's a side-by-side -side comparison in the blog post, and you can judge for yourself whether you think Banksy is swiping from him. And some people are saying, oh, it's classic Banksy. He's just reappropriating and re... Blah, blah. Whatever. You know what? I'm sorry. If you're, if you're taking a point of view or even some actual words, sentences from somebody else who's also involved in the struggle against advertising pervasive uh, reach and stretch into our popular imagination, you need to credit where you got it from, okay? I teach my students that you have to give credit where credit's due or else you're plagiarizing. And I think if Banksy, if Banksy's guilty of this, he needs to fess up to it and issue an apology maybe or say like, hey, this guy's pretty cool. You should check him out. Okay, uh, I think I've said pretty much everything I need to say for this week, uh, and I, so I will end with a quote from a guy named Richard Thiem. I may be saying his name wrong, but um, he had an article that he wrote in December 14th, 2004, and it's called My Last Talk with Gary Webb. I won't say much about Gary Webb right now, except to say that if you don't know who he is, you should go find out about Gary Webb. W-E-B-B -B is his last name. He was an investigative reporter with the San Jose Mercury News. 
And in this article, my last talk with Gary Webb, uh, Richard Thiem says, quote, The passion for truth and justice is not a sprint. It's a long-distance run that requires a different kind of training, a different degree of commitment. Our eye must be on the goal that we know we will never reach in our lifetimes. Faith is the name of believing in the transcendent, often despite all evidence to the contrary. So ladies and gentlemen, I tell you, let's believe in the transcendent, shall we? Get to work. Go make the world a better place. I will stop talking now. Deviant Syncast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Nucleic Records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOAR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.